0: Hey everyone, before we kick off, quick disclosure that I'm an investor in ECO, one of the companies that Joey co-founded a few years back. Now, let's jump in. All right, everyone, today we have a guest who has done a little bit of everything uh, very early into the Bitcoin space, uh, became pretty well known in 2015 after launching what I think was the first ever token sale, public crowd sale on, uh, on Ethereum for Augur, which was a decentralized predictions market, still is, uh, later went on to join Pantera Capital, one of the most successful venture firms in all of crypto, as their co-chief investment officer, Pantera, currently manages, I, mean, I think, more than $6, billion, 6 billion in AUM these days, maybe more, maybe a little less. Uh, and then beyond that, he runs one of the most successful angel syndicates of all time and is also the co-founder of ECO which recently raised $60 million, led by El and Andreessen, and some more. Joey, uh, I think you are going to have to shorten your bio, my friend, if uh, you want to come back on some more podcasts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, all of that's right, except I think, uh, you know, market's down a bit. So I think we're in the five-something billion range, uh, you know, today.
0: Nice, nice. That's exciting. Well, well congrats, man. Um, I, let's talk about the markets. Actually, this is where I want to start. We will end up talking about some really interesting L1 stuff and L2s, and some more what I would call like <clears throat> the nitty gritty, more specific stuff in crypto. But actually, I want to zoom out as far as possible beyond crypto and just talk about macro for a second. Uh, your partner at Pantera, Dan Moorhead, uh, writes some really amazing pieces. And I'm, I'm assuming you two collaborate on them, on just the markets and the Fed and where we're at right now. And so I just want to get your take on macro uh, before zooming into crypto. So wh- where are we in the macro landscape right now? What do you find interesting? What are you looking at right now in macro?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think on the macro side, like the question is like, there's two questions, right? Like one is like, how much is the Fed actually going to raise rates? Um, if, you, if you rolled the clock back, you know, a year ago, people thought the Fed wouldn't raise rates until 2023. Uh, now kind of the Fed's estimate of, of Fed members is that uh, there's going to be three rate hikes this year. Um, and then you have people like, I think Jamie Dimon or somebody at JP Morgan was saying, you know, they think there's going to be four or five, something like that. It's the question is like, how many times are they actually going to raise rates in the next year? Um, because if they raise them a lot, that'll probably impact risk on assets in a, in a negative way. And then the other question is, you know, what's going to happen to inflation? Um, and then so like when I started looking into this, I um, I started kind of going down the rabbit hole of like, why do we have so much inflation right now, which takes you to the supply chain. And then it also takes you to this aspect of like, there's this higher predilection for goods. So consumers are buying goods at a much higher rate than than they used to, uh, because they're inside, they're not going out and traveling as much. They're not, you know, not that many people are going out and getting massages because they're worried about COVID, like these things in the real world that you would go and do, people aren't doing as much. And so then it kind of boils down to like, you have to figure out, you know, well, what's going to happen with COVID. And then it kind of all, you know, recursively bubbles up from there uh, when it comes to like a, mac- a macro view. I think the way I'd sum up my, my view of everything I've looked into is I think um, it, Bill Gates said this recently, he thought that kind of Omicron is probably the last big COVID wave before it kind of just becomes this endemic thing. That's sort of like the flu that's around all the time. Um, and so if that's true, then you would expect to see, you know, predilection for goods start to decrease in the second half of the year. You'd expect to see supply chains start to recover because people aren't buying so many goods. You expect to see shipping prices eventually start to level out and maybe eventually come down, um, and then inflation would start to moderate. So that's that's kind of like my my current view on things.
2: We talk about micro a lot, but um, you know, one of the criticisms that we hear is like, look, crypto has benefited from people working from home, people being having more time, and then you have this you know rise in, in interest in NFTs and gaming. Uh, do you think that goes away? in an environment where people go back to work, people are no longer at home and have more time just to go outside and travel and all this stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't think it goes away. Like I think, I think, you know, maybe the interest level drops a little bit and then it's, and then it will look like a blip on the long-term trend line when you, you know, look back five years from now. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it goes away. Like, I think it's like, it's, it's hit like a, you know, escape velocity point where I would be shocked if it just kind of went away. Like, you know, beanie baby style. Like I don't, I don't think that's what this is. It's not. It's not hype around one thing. Like, there's not just hype around you know CryptoPunks. There's tons of different categories of NFTs and different genres of things that people are interested in. So I think it's something that's not going away, even if people start to you know go outside more.
0: Joey, what you're talking about here is, I mean, if you if you jump on crypto Twitter, you're, you're, you hear talks about obviously inflation, right? Eurozone inflation at a 24 year high, U.S. inflation at a 39 to 40 year high. Uh, cryptos, almost like the community feels more like. Powerful slash engaged than ever before, at least than than I can remember it. Uh, but what you're what you're talking about is actually uh, kind of counter to that narrative. Which is what you're mentioning is inflation might decrease. Maybe we're at like a um, this year's high for inflation right now, and, and maybe people will actually start going outside again, and maybe some of these communities will. Uh, Almost like disform uh, from what we've been seeing in covid and so these are kind of like counter to the the bullish crypto narrative so how do you find crypto playing into this macro narrative and is that fair to say like what what I mentioned before that some of the stuff that you're seeing might be and your macro theses might be counter to the bullish crypto narrative
1: yeah I mean I think I wouldn't say it's 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 well okay it's counter to the narrative it's not counter to the bullishness of it it's the way I would describe it is you know I think a lot of people in crypto you know they say, oh Inflation is really high. That means crypto is going to go up because it's an inflation hedge. Well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one of them is markets are forward leading, right? So like if inflation is really high, it probably means at some point it's going to drop in the future, which means like the the macro kind of forward leading thing to do is like maybe de-risk a bit of crypto as inflation starts to moderate. Um, the other angle you could have there as well, the Fed's going to raise rates and you don't want to fight the Fed. So, you know, crypto is probably going to drop a bit as the Fed raises rates until the market really prices in how many rate hikes there are. Obviously, like, it's not like we need to wait till the fifth rate hike and then, you know, it's up from there. It's totally plausible that, like, say, say the reality is the Fed does four rate hikes and then things kind of level out. Once the market starts pricing in four rate hikes, the market's probably bottomed and then you can buy it then, even if we're only on rate, rate hike number two, you know, is kind, of, is kind of the idea here. And so I think when I think about inflation, yeah, I think it's actually beneficial for the crypto market if inflation tapers off because of the fact that today crypto is still so nascent and so young. It's really, it's a risk asset. Like, you know, I, I own over, like 95% of my net worth is in crypto. And I view that as a, like, it's a risky move in the short term. It's not a risky move in the long term. But if you think about it from the short term's perspective, you know, as, as rates go up, people start to de-risk their portfolios because they think other people are going to do it. And then eventually the market prices in however many rate hikes there's actually going to be. Right now the market's pricing in roughly three. I think I just looked at the, you know, the CME's website this morning. I think they're pricing in roughly 1.1%. Um, short-term rates by kind of like early next year uh, federal funds rates. And so, you know, if that's right, then maybe we've already bottomed. If the actual rate ends up being 1.5%, then, you know, the bottom hasn't happened yet. But I think it's, it's mostly the way I sum it up because I'm, I'm very bullish on the space. I just think that if inflation keeps going up further, it's actually a bearish thing um, because it means the Fed is going to have to ha- hike rates higher. And if you look at crypto, you have Bitcoin. Let's toss that aside for the moment. Everything else, like the ETH space and the smart contract stuff, they're effectively tech companies. Uh, people are going to hate that framing, but just like roll with it for a moment. They're tech companies in the sense that you know if you look at like the discounted cash flows of them, as rates increase, um, the risk-free rate is higher, and so your valuation is inherently lower. Um, and so it's actually good if inflation tapers off. Is how I describe my thesis.
2: Yeah, and Joey, I think um, just putting. You know, I think it's really hard to predict short-term um, movements and macro generally. At least, in my perspective, I am curious. Just zooming out, you've been in the space for a while. You're a builder, you're an investor. Um, you've seen multiple cycles. I am um, curious. Like, what are the things that have surprised you the most throughout? You know, I think what you've seen now at this point, three, four cycles. Um, you could argue more, depending on how you count these. But I am curious. What What are the things that have surprised you the most um, over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the very, the most surprising thing, you know, I mean, when I first bought Bitcoin in 2011, the, the price went down, you know, to like two cents because Mt. Gox got hacked the first time. So that was the first very surprising thing over the years. But I think like, you know, if you look at like this most recent cycle, I mean, one of the one of the surprising things is that you kind of had this, you know, effectively like, you know, double top, um, but then the second top wasn't you know, like a, a crazy high top. It was kind of, you know, like this, it re-hit 69K and then it's kind of tapered off. And, you, and you've kind of had these really long consolidation periods within the bull cycle period. And like you look at prior crypto cycles, you kind of have like the consolidation periods typically happen in a very bearish phase. And I guess what I would say is I don't really think we're in a bear market right now. I think we're just in a consolidation kind of um, chop in, in the bull market. Like I, d- I don't think we've seen kind of like the crazy peak yet of this cycle is kind of how I would describe it. Um, and I think the the length of this cycle, I guess, is, is somewhat surprising. Um, and, you know, I, I could see, like, it's it's sure it's plausible that that Bitcoin touches 30K. It's also plausible it goes back, you know, to 50, 60K. Um, I don't foresee, like, another 80% drawdown, um, at least from where we were, right? Like, I don't see 80% drawdown from 69K. If we had hit 150K, yeah, that seems plausible.
2: And why is that? You know, because a lot of people like obviously look at the prior cycle and say, "Hey, look, alt's went down 90%, Bitcoin, ETH went down 80% or so, 75-80%." W- why is that the case? In this case, like why is it not possible?
1: There's a couple of things. One, this the space is much more space is much more mainstream than it was back then. Um like back then it was kind of almost only people within crypto who were trading the asset. Now you have people outside of crypto. You also have capital allocators who who um, you know, aren't going to sell at all. Like they're have, like, you know, 10 year lockup style money. Um, and then you have, and a lot of those funds, like it's just not in their mandate to sell. Like, like even like the advent of like crypto funds, I think like if you look at, you know, some of these hedge funds, some of them almost never take risk off. And like in the early days of crypto, like go back to 2011, 2013, it was almost all retail. And those people were trading it around a lot. Um, and then I think, so I think that's part of it. Um I also think liquidation engines have gotten better over the years. Uh, yeah, you'll still have liquidation cascades, but like you know, uh, hopefully March 2020 is a thing of the past. Uh, it's not impossible. I think the odds that, that happens today are lower in the market than they were back then, just because I think our our liquidation models have improved. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly not impossible. Uh, but I, th- I think and I think the last piece is you just still have this kind of huge influx of capital, and we're seeing it from Pantera. This huge influx of capital on the institution side that like in 20, you know. 2018 2019 you know you didn't see that like our inflows were very low back then um, there wasn't kind of this continuous trickle of capital coming into the market in those days and so it made prolonged slides you know get much deeper than they probably otherwise would have
0: Joe i want to double click on this market cycle narrative because i think that the kind of market cycle narrative six months ago was okay bitcoin just ripped higher from i think it was like 30k in july up to 65k and a lot of the folks who had been around for four or five, six years said, okay, guys, you're all excited right now. You don't understand what a bull market really looks like. You don't understand the FOMO that will be in the air. You don't understand. It's when CNBC is telling you how to how to buy Ripple. You guys don't, you just wait and see, right? This thing's going to 250K. Six months later, we're sitting here. The commentary is the exact same, but flipped, right? I feel like there's a lot of commentary saying, guys, no, 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 the markets fall into 35, you know, thirty-five, forty, 40, 42K, I think today. But you don't understand what a bear market feels like. This thing could go way lower. You don't understand how bad a bear market could get. But it sounds like your narrative and just the way that you're framing the market cycle right now is we're just going to get chopped for a long time. We might see three, six, nine months of, of just chop and consolidation. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the way I describe it is like it's one of those things. So markets always tend to do – I mean like – Santiago, you mentioned like, what have I learned over those cycles over the years? I and mean, one of the things I learned is that markets kind of do what you what you rationally don't expect them to do. Um, and so like, you know, yeah, I remember I remember last year at one point thinking like, well, like the narrative you were talking about, Jason, like I remember thinking I, that kind of popped into my mind and I, and I started to believe it for a while and then I kind of caught myself. And I think, you know, right now you've kind of flipped to the opposite extreme on Twitter, right? People are like, oh, it's going to be another eight percent drawdown bear market. I think the markets tend to kind of prove you know, most observers wrong. And so I think in this case, you know, um, I, I think it's probably going to be chopped for a while, especially as we raise rates. Like, they, the market could go a bit lower. There could be, like, a liquidation cascade that happens, you know, where, where it drops a lot and then bounces back pretty quickly. But my kind of read on the market is, is mostly just chopped for a while until, until the market has a clear read on where inflation's going and where rates are going. Um, and it's something where, you know, there's kind of this attitude in crypto, like, oh, we don't have to pay attention to macro. Like, you know, I remember somebody says on Twitter the other day, like, you know, everybody in crypto trying to pay attention to macro, it's like, it's like dumb, you don't know anything about it. And like, I used to not pay attention to macro either, because was like, the space is so small, you don't need to pay attention to it. But then like, you know, earlier this year, I kind of had like a wake up call. And it's like, I actually need to educate myself on macro. because if I don't understand it, like, I'm not, I'm not actually as effective as an investor as I should be in the space. And So I think it's a mistake not to pay attention to, to macro in the space.
2: One thing that I want to, perhaps if you can lend some perspective on is... Um, we talk about correlation within crypto quite a bit and it had been it felt like last year there was an attempt for eth and and some other pockets of crypto to break this tight correlation that you see with Bitcoin especially moments of volatility um, you know a lot of people, the the argument that you know a lot of folks over the years have said, look, Bitcoin is an uncorrelated asset class, and this is something that we keep hearing over and over. But when you actually look at the data, it's actually quite correlated. It has a high, super high beta, and in the moments where you need it to be most uncorrelated, it actually breaks. And you know people forget, but Bitcoin hasn't, and the space in general hasn't gone through like a global financial crisis. And so, I don't, I don't, I don't candidly buy this argument that it is a uncorrelated asset class. I think it's super correlated. It has, a, it, it will continue to have a really high beta. It's a risk on asset. Uh, the same with the tech kind of behaves relative like the nasdaq is down ten percent the s and p s down uh, less less than that, and so I think um it 's sort of disingenuous to assume that this is going to be uncorrelated, but one of the things that I think has changed over the years is the the type of investors coming into the space so perhaps you had more macro macro funds kind of playing this Bitcoin small allocation trade um whereas now you see just as you said more permanent capital base more like tech focused investors, which have a much longer time horizon. I am curious, I mean, Pantera has four funds, right? I think four or five funds, different strategies. How, how has the composition of your LP base changed over the years? And what kind of interest are you seeing from your funds? Um, and, and and do you, is that true? What I just said is sort of, is that true at the level of interest that you're seeing from investors in the space?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, if you look at our LP base over time in the early days, in the early days, it was basically just, you know, Dan, who, when he started the firm, it was, you know his money and I think like two or three, you know, friends from college. And then, um, you know, over time, we added more high net worth individuals. Then the next kind of tier was like family offices. You know, then after that, you have multifamily offices. And then, you know, I think in 2018 or so, we kind of got the first couple of like smaller institutions, whether that's other venture funds, you know, wanting like to share deals uh, who are maybe at the later stage than us. Or, um, you know, you also have, I would say, like, some corporates who are looking to kind of educate themselves on the space. And then I think if you fast forward to today, you know, the next kind of category of investors, like, some of the endowments and, and things like that. Um, and and then kind of, I think, probably the last tier would be, like, pensions, you know, they, they just move slower even than, than endowments. Um, and And at this point, we do have some endowments in the fund. And so I would say you know, what they're interested in, the other thing about permanent capital, you know, they're more interested in our, in our blockchain fund, which is our, you know, it's a multi strat fund. It's just all our other strategies. So early stage venture, early stage tokens and liquid token trading in like a venture style, you know, seven to 10 year fund. Um, and they like that because one, they don't have to decide what to allocate across, like no capital allocator, who's a large institution wants to decide what percentage they should put into three different funds. They just want to buy one vehicle. Uh, in our experience. And then I think the second reason um, they like it is because they don't need to have a, a a meeting once a month where they're talking about the performance. You know, they can revisit it on a quarterly basis and, and maybe seriously look at it on an annual basis. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a much like calmer thing than like having like a monthly, you know, performance report in a really liquid hedge fund. Um, so I think that's the other reason why capital allocators are moving towards that style of fund.
2: Which of these funds um, has perform the best and, and, and why would you attribute the success? I mean, cause cause like the blockchain fund is very, sounds like it's very long-term focused liquid token fund is sort of very actively traded and perhaps looking at social signals and other stuff to be more opportunistic. The venture funds probably investing in early stage stuff. Um, I believe you have like just Bitcoin only product. And so I'm curious, like, um, one, what strategy has been perhaps the most successful and I think it's a trick. It's a difficult question, right? Because you have to factor in Sharpe ratio and Sortina ratio, which is a sort of nebulous concept. But unless, like, which have been historically the most successful, which strategy do you think is going to be the most successful going forward, and why?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think historically, you know, if you kind of look over the years, I think our, our early stage token fund has been you know, the most successful, in in, in my opinion, um, mostly because it's 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 kind of a strategy where you where you have an insane amount of edge. Right. And like the edge that you do have is, is, you know, high. And I guess the way I describe it is you're investing in these token projects very early. It's, um, a relationship based, you know, style of, of business. Um, you're actually trying to add value to them in certain ways that kind of yields referrals in a sense, like, you know, other founders refer, refer you other founders and if they have positive things to say about you, then it's kind of a virtuous cycle. Um, which is why I think like if you look at venture funds, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, they're kind of, you know, ignoring, like maybe a couple of rare exceptions, they're basically like the highest returning asset class you can invest in. Um, obviously, there, there's risk involved, but um, they're they're very high upside. And I think on in crypto, those tend to be tokens. Like there's more upside in tokens than, than equity, um, at least based on our performance historically. Um, if you look at the liquid side, um, I mean, last year, so you look more recently. Last year, our liquid fund actually outperformed our early stage one. Um, so the you know our liquid fund was up about 385% and our early stage was up 294%. And our liquid one outperformed, I think because a couple of reasons. One, um, we did take risk off a few times uh, throughout the year. And so that kind of compounds, where if you take, you know, 25 to 35% risk off, and then the market goes down 30%, and then you put it back down at the lower level, um, that starts to add up a bit. And in the the early stage fund, it's much harder to do because the positions are much less liquid. Um, It's more like navigating, you know, a cruise ship that's like a venture fund that has liquid pricing. and so I think that's kind of probably why liquid outperformed, you know, our early stage one last year, but over the history, early stages has
0: beaten it. Joey, is there something that, um, that your liquid, to- the actively managed fund, the liquid token fund has noticed as like a very clear signal to go risk off, whether it's social signals, quantitative signals, is there something that makes your team say, Oh my God, now is- it's obvious, let's go risk off for the next 30 days.
1: There's not one thing, um, you know, I, I wish there, I wish there was, um, I, and I think like, you know, the, the types of data we look at are things like, yeah, we look at like sentiment, I think that's useful. Um, we also look at like different types of on-chain data. Um, like a lot of the kind of stuff you can see on, on like sites like Glassnode and stuff, I think is informative. Um, there's also like, you know, liquidation data you can get, um, if you like you know, reconstruct when people put trades on and stuff, you, you can kind of get some interesting data about where the likely liquidation levels are in the market. Um, you know, I think in crypto, it tends to be, this is something that I used to not believe in. Um, and then I kind of realized I was wrong. Like crypto is pretty technically analysis heavy, technical analysis heavy. Like people pay attention to that stuff, even if like there's no rational basis for why it should make sense. If, if you know, half the traders in the market are paying attention to something, that they view as significant, it kind of inherently is significant, even if it otherwise would have no significance. Um, I think those are the kind of the main things. Um, and, and that stuff, it, it, it you'll catch about like half of the risk-off moves with those sorts of things. But the other half are much harder. They tend to be idiosyncratic things. Um, like we caught the January and February risk-off moves. We didn't catch the May one. Like the May one was driven by, you know, mostly driven by like a lot of news that came out and also a lot of news that came out you know during during time periods that I would I would classify as like manipulation like in the sense that there is there's a lot of this news that came out of like these like um Twitter accounts that are called like I forget the names of them but they like tweet like Bloomberg headlines and some of them were tweeting headlines that were just like made up and they were tweeting them right around right around both key technical levels and right about, around key stop loss levels in the market um and like you'd see the tweet and then like within you know seconds to minutes that the market would tank a lot this happened a few times in may it just kept pushing the market lower and lower and it's really hard to trade off stuff like that um because you're you're not the most informed actor whoever's you know putting that tweet out there is is more informed than you
2: how much of um how much of what you do on the active fund is kind of algorithmic is, is sort of like more like i don't know hands-on versus just some sort of algorithm trading around certain signals that you're, you're pulsing, wherever that may be.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'd say our, I mean, our ordered execution is most mostly like a lot of, a lot of algorithmic stuff, but I'd say our, our actual trading is mostly, you know, fundamental and kind of discretionary decision-making. Um, we have like dabbled with quant over the years, but it's, it's hard to find, it's hard to find like a sustainable edge that you can deploy at scale. Um, If you look at successful crypto quant funds, you know, they they tend to have, you know, sub 100 mil under management, um, like firms like Temple Capital and Ophirus and, and, you know, things like that, Um, if they're doing like portfolio driven strategies. Obviously, if you're doing market making or prop trading, it's the rules are different. Like if you're like an Alameda, um, we don't, you know, we're not running those sorts of strats.
2: I want to go back to something that you said, which I always found to be super difficult in the space, which is this is sort of a liquid venture category. Um, you're investing in super early stage stuff. You could argue that everything in this space is quite early, even Bitcoin, certainly anything other than Bitcoin in my estimation is very early behaves like very early stage, but you take a risk off, right. As a fund, uh, you have a certain fund life cycle, you have redemption windows. Um, and, and, or you just believe that certain things trade. I'll give you an example. Like maybe your investment horizon, something like Augur, for instance, is in 10 years out, Prediction markets could be probably one of the most asymmetric categories in the space. They could totally reinvent how we think about information and, 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 and changing the way media behaves and in, in creating, you know, it's fascinating, but sometimes things that you think are going to happen in 10 years happen in three months. And the price prediction, the youth in your, your model that you're thinking, okay, maybe this is a 10 year bet, but how do you manage risk? And you mentioned that you guys have taken off uh, risk. Is that because you just inherently, the things that you thought were going to happen in 10 years happen in three months. And then you just need to systematically size down because as a percent of your portfolio is too high, or just because you think it's better to, you know, enter the market when things cool down. I'm, I'm curious how you think about managing risk. Um, or are you just saying, look, I'm just going to hold this for 10 years and it's going to do this. But you know, if you smooth it out over a 10 year period, it's better for me. It's more tax efficient for me not to even trade this and just set it and forget it.
1: Yeah. So I, think, I think our attitude towards risk depends on, you know which sleeve of the strategy it is. So like for things like the liquid fund, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with your point that you know even the stuff in the public markets is effectively venture anyways. um I think on that one, you know, it's it's easier to kind of take risk off, both because it's more liquid. The assets we're trading there, you know, they they trade more volume, they're easier to sell, but also because like you know the expectation of the LPs isn't that we're going to like hold something for ten years. I mean, we like in theory we might, right? Like if we if but like I think in practice we would probably trade it around um and i think like when it comes to trading stuff around you know you, you you kind of look at things like we discussed earlier in this call like you know the technical stuff sentiment stuff you know on chain data things like that when it comes to things like the early stage token fund where you're investing in you know really early stage projects that you'd like to hold for a very long period of time i think there you know when you when you sell a position or take some risk off there's you know two reasons one reason we do very rarely and one which i think we we do you know sometimes. And the one we do very rarely is like taking risk off, you know, across the board of the portfolio because we think stuff is, is expensive. You know, we did that I think once last year, and then we put risk back on, you know, within a number of days after the market fell. Um, we don't do that too often, only if we have like really, really high conviction. I think the other category is when we think something has, you know, the thesis has changed and the thesis can change for a few reasons. One is it just, it's, it's clear that it doesn't work. Like maybe, you know, you thought the team was really great executors and turns out they can't execute and, you know, half the team left. Like that's like, you know, hopefully if you de-risked it before half the team left, hopefully you figured it out sooner than that. But like that would be an example where you'd want to, you know, sell a position. The other would be, as you mentioned, if it's like way, way out of whack. And the question is like, what's, what's out of whack? And generally the problem with crypto is it's usually much higher than your rational brain thinks it is. Um, like, I remember when when Polkadot went live, I forget the exact percent we sold. It wasn't very high. You know, it was somewhere on the order of 10 to 20% of our position that we sold when it was like, you know, shortly after it went live, a couple months after it went live. And then I remember, you know, we kind of debated internally, should we hold the rest of the position or not? We concluded to hold the rest of the position. And, you know, it's, it's up maybe on the order of, I don't remember the exact multiple, but it's four to six X higher than that. Even today after the drawdown, you know, the, when we decided to hold it. And it was a very large position at the time, and it's a much larger position now. And so those sorts of decisions in crypto, I think, are very hard. I think I tend to be biased in favor of holding stuff just because, you know, I've, I've, um, well, I learned this lesson early on in crypto. But, you know, you you tend to lose more money selling early than you you tend to lose holding through rough periods. Um, Like there are a bunch of funds that went bust because they sold, you know, when the market was down 70% in the bear market. And then you know they didn't buy back when it was down 87 or whatever you know um and so my, my short ver- short view on this is you know you're generally better to be biased in favor of holding things than than selling them just because of the way crypto is so convex in terms of its like outcomes
2: on that point um you know do you um uh, of course it, it helps that if you're open-ended fund you can continue to raise capital and you know deploy in in the bear if you will but it's sort of hard at that point maybe to raise capital. I am curious um, how you think about, you know, this current market environment and, you know, are you rotating your portfolio back into ETH, back into Bitcoin Um, and especially for those early kind of, is there ever a time where one fund, for instance, say the, the venture fund, uh, you know, invest in an early stage project, you've already vested, you want to take some chips off the table because you see more upside in investing in more early stage stuff at a lower valuation, maybe a different category that, you know, gaming or whatever that is now more developed and you see more upside. Does that ever present like a challenge or a conflict with perhaps a liquid fund that might have a position in, in that particular project that is liquid? Uh, and, and how do you manage kind of the, that tension within kind of your funds to, uh, you know, to make sure that you avoid some sort of
0: conflict?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So there's kind of a couple of answers there. One is on, you know, take the venture fund three as an example or early stage token fund or whatever, you know, and those funds, they're they're kind of firewall to their own strategies. Like venture can't turn around and, and you know, go buy, to- it can't sell a really expensive venture deal and buy tokens. Um, now, the blockchain fund is more interesting to answer this question because it, it can do things like that. Uh, In fact, it's kind of one of the big selling points that has the flexibility to be able to, you know, say ventures overvalued, we want to buy tokens or tokens are undervalued, overvalued, we want to buy venture. We can do things like that. Um, The only area where you really start to run into conflicts and mitigating them is in things like what if the blockchain fund, you know, is investing in an early stage token deal. Well, the early stage token fund is going to invest in that deal too. And then so like the question is, how do you allocate the deals across the two funds? And that's a, there's a pretty straightforward answer to that, like you allocate them based on, effectively based on their relative liquid AUMs minus, you know, reductions that you have on the books. And so that's sort of like, what's the actual capital available for deploying into these strategies? And then you just split it up pro rata, and, and so that's how we split our deals up. That way we're not ever being like, you know, oh, should we put this in the early stage token fund or we should put it in the blockchain fund? Because then you start to get into really weird conflicts of interest. We just split them up pro rata based on sort of like AUM, although it's a little more complex complex than that.
0: Joey, talking a lot about the the venture side of the business right now, I think you have a really, really unique view into the next 24 to 36 months just because of where you sit investing in a lot of the early stage deals. And so when I look at kind of the the big trends of crypto over the last couple of, of years, right? It's like 2017, the ICOs, 2018, like maybe exchanges, you could say, 2019, like institutional infrastructure, custody, prime brokerage, uh, some of those kind of things got big. 2020, I would say DeFi was the narrative. 2021, uh, last year was NFTs and then into the metaverse. So take us a couple of years into the future or maybe even just this year. Like, What are those kind of one to two line trends for 2022, 2023, 2024 that you're really, really excited about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the stuff that we're seeing is like one is like more complicated DeFi stuff. You know, so, so, you know, DeFi 1.0 was kind of like primitives, right? It was like, yeah, you have lending markets, you have markets to trade, you have exchanges. And then I think the kind of next wave of DeFi that we're funding right now and others are funding as well is, you know, more complex stuff, whether that's, you know, automated DeFi insurance where the payouts are you know, based on smart contracts as opposed to humans or, you know, things that let you create, you know, different risk tranches where two people can contribute to a liquidity pool and one can post ETH. And one composed of stable coins and you know we as a fund don't need to borrow stables to to do it um you know things like that um you also have a lot of more kind of like contract contract interactions where you know there's different projects that are working on like making it so that they can provide liquidity to another to another project um you have a lot more happening in the decentralized derivative space there's a lot of like decentralized options protocols being created right now um and then i think you know, then you also have kind of all this scalability stuff that's finally starting to happen. More, more and more projects are building on things like, you know, Arbitrum, Optimism, Starkware, other chains like Solana, Polkadot, Near, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think the other, the second area that I see is, you know, on the NFT and gaming and kind of metaverse stuff. I think on that area, I think right now, what you see is you see a lot of very simple games that aren't that fun to play. Like I played actually Infinity, the other day you know and it's obviously a very successful project but it's just not that fun um like it's 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 not a very fun game to play like you're just kind of clicking a few buttons here and there um i think what will change over the next two to four years is people will actually create games that are fun to play um i think if you look at all this metaverse stuff that's happening a lot of it's not that doesn't really feel that much like the metaverse So, like as an example uh a massive mmo like world of warcraft feels much more like the metaverse to me than you know something like fortnite does and i know that might be a controversial statement but i think something like wow is it's much more immersive it's, it's kind of like you're much deeper into it than you are into like a fortnite game obviously it's missing a lot of things it's missing the interoperability it's missing like the open you know network wow is a very walled garden but i think what will happen in crypto gaming is i think people will take the interesting parts of traditional gaming like great graphics great design like games that are actually fun to play and then add crypto to them and you know, have these kind of like more open networks where you can transfer items across games and stuff and, and that actually starts to get a lot more interesting. But like transferring like, you know, one axie to another game that's compatible with it, you know, is, is like not not as interesting, I think, just because it's like the games aren't fun to play. Um not trying to be mean. It's just like it's just like I think like I think these games could be a lot more fun than they are today.
0: So I, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things we can talk about there. There's one area specifically I want to dig in on. It's something that Santiago and I have been talking a lot about on our, uh, on the weekly roundup episodes, which is tokenomics. Uh, and you mentioned like more complicated DeFi and this is what comes to mind. So really what it feels like to me, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong here is it feels like the last couple of years we've, we've kind of just been in the mode of like launch a token, right? Get the token out the door and figure it out later. And now we are in the figure it out later phase. Uh, And things have become like a little less speculative, Uh, a a little bit of the froth has gotten sucked out of the markets. And now founders and protocols are changing their mindsets and saying, how can I tweak governance to actually accrue value and, and, and improve the value of the platform? And how do I incentivize users to do all of that? Right. So you had like Olympus Dow and like Ohm and OMIs. And then you had the curve, you have the curve wars. And, and then now you have like yearn changed the tokenomics. Now you've got Daniel Sesta and Andre working on, uh, on a big new project. And a lot of it is around like this VE model, like the voting escrow model. Uh, and so I'm curious, like when you do think behind the scenes, like take us a little bit, peel back the curtain behind the scenes. You're talking to a lot of the founders who are creating these token models. What, what, what's the conversation around tokenomics these days? Like what are you seeing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think. I think one way I describe it is like, I mean, you're right. People are kind of trying to shift tokens. Um, you know, I think I think like if you look at what people are doing, I think in the old days, I mean, I, and I'm someone who, who, you know, I, I would certainly say myself, I got this wrong is, you know, like with Augur, for instance, we focus so much on getting the economics, you know, really right um, from like a design standpoint, like, it, you know, making sure it's game theoretically secure and, and, you know, completely decentralized and all this stuff. Um, and not enough on like, you know, how do you actually get like product market fit and like lots of usage and stuff. Um, I think both are important, but I think like in the, in the old days, people focused too much on the, on the token design and economics piece. And then maybe today they're focusing a bit too much on the, on the product market fit piece and, and forgetting about the economics. But I do think, I think my view is that it's, it's easier to get, um, it's easier to build a good token model than it is to get product market fit. is is at least a lesson I've learned. And and maybe it's one that I've just like, you know, past scars have biased me in favor of that, but that's kind of my read. And so I think like people are putting a lot more focus on that, getting product market fit. And then once they have it, then they're going back and saying, okay, how do we make sure that like everything's incentive aligned and the token model actually makes sense. Um, And and I think that's kind of just starting, like we're just kind of starting to see projects really start to take that part seriously now that they got product market fit. is, is how I would describe it. Another thing we're seeing on the token side is, you know, back in 2020, for instance, projects would do these like liquidity rewards. where They kind of give away a lot of their token. Now projects are much more careful and thoughtful about that. Like how they give it away, like how they incentivize people there. Um, like one project we invested in is called SIN futures, a a decentralized derivatives exchange. And, you know, they tried to get product market fit and, and have their, their trading activities growing pretty, pretty well before launching the token at all, which I think is like a smart, a smart model because yeah. once you, if you start with the token from day one, you don't really know whether you have true product market fit or not because you're giving people away uh, free money.
2: will you talk about DeFi 2.0 a lot, um, I don't think it's perfect either. I mean, obviously it's an improvement on DeFi 1.0. Uh, the space continues to improve. Face today, if you could invest in a DeFi 1.0 project or a DeFi 2.0 project, maybe DeFi 1.0 Maker or or Yearn, you could argue Yearn is maybe like transitioning more towards 2.0 and adopting some of those like mechanisms. But still, you know, Old Guard, Compound, Uniswap, um, Maker, Aave, and now you look at 2.0, which, you know, a a lot of times when I remember talking to a lot of these projects, like they inherently are faced with the challenge of trying to pass, maybe restructure the token. It's very difficult to do, sometimes impossible. And so do you think do you think that like DeFi 1.0 projects are a material disadvantage to these new wave of projects that are, you know, learning and taking a lot of the learnings of 1.0 and, and improving upon that mechanism? Uh, and if you give specific examples, it'd be great. Yeah,
1: that's a good question. I, I don't think they're at like a, a huge disadvantage in the sense that like, okay, you take DeFi 2.0 as an example, you know, there, there's going to be a DeFi 3.0 at some point. And so... People need to figure out how how to like you know iterate on what they have in a decentralized fashion, and and do so in a way that that is isn't extremely cumbersome. And if people don't figure that out, you know that's kind of a big problem for the space in, in general. And so I think they're I mean they're at somewhat of a disadvantage, but not not a huge huge one. I think from an investor standpoint, you know if you look at the DeFi 2.0 stuff, there is some stuff that I think is like interesting. Like you know like icicle financing is pretty interesting. There's also a lot of stuff being built on on Arbitrum that. I forget the names of them, but there's a bunch of like derivatives projects built on top. And if you look at them, like relative to their attraction, they they trade at pretty cheap prices. Um, some of it's stuff that's like too low market cap for us to be able to buy like in any reasonable size. But you know, if I was a retail investor or or a smaller fund, I might look at stuff like that. Um, and they're kind of like, and they're maybe like DeFi 1.5. You know, they're they're not like the, um, you know ice spell, you know, like frog ecosystem kind of stuff. They're 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 you know simpler than that, um, but there's there's still a lot of interesting happening there. I think DeFi 2.0. The problem I see as an investor in it, though, is a lot of it's just really crazy expensive valuations. Um, like from any, and, and again, crypto is one of those things where something that can look expensive, then it's then it's 50x up from that, and and you know then it's like okay maybe it wasn't actually expensive. But I think right now given that the market's kind of entering this kind of cautious chop period, I think it's f- probable that we'll be able to buy some of that stuff at much cheaper prices. And also after they figured out a lot of like the R and D stuff that, that kind of hasn't really been figured out yet. And so like we haven't put too many large positions on, on two flame projects. projects. I mean, we have on the early stage side, just not in the public markets.
2: Right. Could you argue that, you know, DeFi probably is closer to a bottom especially DeFi 1.0 is closer to bottom with much more fundamental traction and support than perhaps some of the metaverse, some of the, you know, NFT infrastructure, DeFi 2.0 projects, maybe other L1s that, you know, obviously have a lot of incentives and, you know, ecosystem funds, but perhaps not as many users um, and or kind of sustainable token models um, you know, certainly short-term might be interesting, mm-hmm. but maybe not, not as kind of organic traction, if you will. Uh, I'm sort of curious if you believe that to be true, if not kind of how you think about maybe zooming out a little bit of just kind of playing this multi-chain strategy, you know, how much of your portfolio is in Ethereum and Ethereum-based projects, or do you see much, much more upside in other ecosystems like Near or Terra or Solana or Cosmos, if you will?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I, I do agree with that on the, on the DeFi one point on side, like, I think that stuff is just cheaper. Um, and I mean, that's, that's a phrase in traditional investing, you know, stuff that's cheap, you know, can, can, can get much, much cheaper. But I, I do think that it, that it is closer to bottoming than, than other assets in the space also because like there's just a lot of fundamental traction there. And um, I think when the rest of the space recovers, you know, those fundamentals will recover in, in kind of a really nice positive recursive way where you got know, something trading at a, uh, implied earnings multiple of 15 and then the price of Ether doubles, it's probably trading at a PE multiple of seven, either that or the price doubles um, or, or more. And so I think um, it, it kind of provides this bit of a margin of safety. Um, an example of this in the last cycle, it's not quite the same. And was a much higher multiple as if you look at finance coin, yeah, you know, it went down less than other stuff in the bear market because Binance had volumes and volumes, they go down, but you know, if, if it, you know, if, if prices across the board went down 80 something percent, volumes actually didn't go down 80 uh, percent. They went down a lot, but not not 80. And so you know, the price of their token wasn't as impacted as, say, you know, a random bag of altcoins. Um, and I think in DeFi, is kind of a more extreme example of that. It trades at much cheaper multiples and stuff like BNB did back then. Um, and so, yeah, I think that could could, could totally be true and it's, it's a thesis I hold. Um, I think you look at different chains, um, I think. I mean, these other layer ones. Like, we're investors in some of them on the early stage side, and we'll hold them a very long time. I think on the public markets portfolio side, they're they're more expensive. Like, I'd rather be buying, you know, new projects kind of built on top of, you know, things like Polkadot than buying another hundred million of Polkadot. You know, I, I just think there's a better risk reward there.
2: Is that, is that true generally of the ecosystems? Where, like, if you think about like your exposure to the base layer kind of dots atoms. Versus playing the the application layer, um, do you do you typically kind of position your portfolio that way? Where you say you like Cosmos, for instance, you're you're more likely to invest in applications being built on that particular ecosystem versus the base layer token. Um, you know the reason I ask this is uh, well, we we had the multi coin guys earlier um, and they mentioned, look, the best way to play a lot of these is not owning DeFi tokens; it's actually just owning the base. Kind of the token, uh, given an MEV, particularly for Ethereum, for instance, might not be true for other kind of um, uh, tokens or ecosystems. But I'm curious to get your perspective on on this kind of the ratio between application layer versus kind of base consensus engine layer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think right now we're pretty heavy uh, base layers, just just because I think, you know, while the market's a bit choppy and I'm not 100% sure that DeFi's bottomed yet, you know, I haven't kind of pulled the trigger to, to flip back into that stuff more heavily. But I think over the years we, we tend to be pretty heavy in you know non-base layer stuff. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and you know I think for for base layers, like I mean if you look at Solana as an example, you know it's it's came off a lot since the peak, um, and the early stage projects on top actually aren't aren't that cheap. Like if you look at like um, Serum, you know its valuation is not even that far from from the underlying layer ones. And so like on a relative basis I'd rather own Solana than I'd than, than serum as an example and so there are exceptions to the to the to the rule but I think like if you look at polka dot as an example I, I forget what price we paid for the series a of acala but on a on a relative basis you know it is a much higher EV trade I mean I'm very bullish dot too but you know you know between two uh high EV bets that I love I think acala was like a clearly higher EV bet um, but yeah there are exceptions to that rule
2: yeah. Not to mention Betty and retail are just savage operators uh, in, in the good sense of the word. Yeah. Um, I, I am curious, um, like you talk about serum, for instance, relative to Solana. I, I assume you're talking about the fully diluted valuation because how do you think about, and, and are there going back to like, kind of like first principles, like mental models, like do, do you focus a lot on fully diluted circulating? Do you look at plus two plus three plus five years and just look at the token emission schedule and where that's going? like, how do you, you talk about fundamental valuation, relative valuation. Um, how do you think about specifically around kind of looking at comparing projects on a relative basis? And if that's on a circulating or fully diluted basis?
1: Yeah, great question. I I look at fully diluted because, I mean, I, I would say like, when you think about like investing in early stage startups, you know, I care about fully diluted. I don't, I don't care about, you know, like, circulate like i don't care what about like what investors own and in their preferred stock and and you know that's all that's circulating Um uh, i mean there are certain cases where preferred stock you do need to pay attention to it like in acquisitions and stuff but but generally you care about the, the overall valuation what do you investing? what percentage of this thing do i own what percent of the cash flows do i own and i think like if you're doing really short-term trading you know there's you can kind of pay attention to circulating and you can try to trade around like the retail market sentiment and stuff but it's pretty complicated and it's it's kind of like a it's a game that's it's it's not that interesting to me, and I, and I think it's very very complex to play. Um, and so I prefer to just look at fully diluted because I know like what am I buying here?
0: Do you have a baked out thesis on how these like L, quote unquote L1 wars kind of play out over the next couple of years? Multi chain future, ETH only, another chain, eight different chains. Each chain gets their own thing. Two or three chains win it all. What, do you have a baked out thesis here yet?
1: Not super baked out. I mean the the, the two different things I thought of are like. You know, one idea is maybe it's kind of like how you if you look at like the database market. Um, like, you know, you have like a, a handful of databases that are really popular and then you have a really long tail of a million other options that are kind of obscure. Another could be like the Linux distribution market, you know. Um, another one that's even wackier could be you think about it like, think about it in terms of like, you know, world economic powers. Um, like you, you tend to kind of have one or two that are kind of, you know, kind of like the global, you know, the global hegemon, so to speak. And then you have kind of a a longer tail of stuff that's still relevant and still powerful, but it's not the top one. Like, you know, today you might say U S and China, and then like an example, that's like still very relevant player, but not the top one would be like Japan or Germany. Um, That could be how it plays out. I do have conviction that I don't think we end up with like, everything is, you know, only on one chain. Um, I do think we'll end up with, you know, like when people have like a very serious, like thing that they want to do settlement for, you know, like a massive, massive transaction. I do have like pretty high conviction that that will probably take place on Ethereum Um, just because of the set of trade-offs that ETH is making on decentralization, I think are kind of the most conservative ones uh, and also in terms of security. But I think like, you know, where are metaverse games deployed and run on, you know, is like, I don't know, I have no idea. Um, That's kind of my, my view
0: does it feel a little bubbly and hypey like it feels like last year you had solana and avalanche obviously obviously had really good years now to kick off this year you're starting to see like phantom and near are having a pretty good time obviously luna had a good good year last year as well like i guess just more shorter term like what did the next 12 to 18 months look like for the l1 space would you say is it like people start chasing the new l1s like trying to chase the new solana and avalanche and, and luna or like what where does this play out
1: I mean, I I think, like, it it starts to hit saturation at some point. Like, I think, and I think, like, the layer ones people are kind of coalescing around with maybe the exception of Phantom, you know, there are kind of things that have been around a while, but just more and more people have coalesced around them. Uh, Like, Luna's been around a while, like, you know, Solana's been around a while. Um, They're starting to get easier to use and easier to build on, which I think is why more and more people are coalescing around them. I I don't really foresee, like, another um, another massive layer one wave in terms of, like, new layer ones. I'm sure there'll be some over the years, but I don't think we'll have another boom like like this one, just because of there's only like so much more you can move the needle there, like in the sense of, and it, it maybe it'll look like, you know, Bill Gates, or I think it's an apocryphal quote, but somebody said, you know, we'll only need a certain amount of RAM forever. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's what this statement will look like. But I think if you look at layer ones, um, past like 10K TPS, you start to get really diminishing returns. Um, especially for financial use cases, obviously gaming and metaverse social stuff is is different.
2: Have you, in, in sensitive to the fact that you may not be able to kind of provide full insight, but if you could describe kind of the worst trade that you've done over the years, and have you adjusted, corrected course, and rebought a particular token, say that you you held a big position, and at least I've noticed in I'm a terrible trader, I'd say Jason's probably also know this, but you know, it, it, sometimes, sometimes you just kind of punch out of a position because it's frustrating. Things are slow. You, you can't justify, can kind of, you look at kind of weak users and, and traction and then all of a sudden kind of you punch out and then, you know, the market does what it does. It's kind of kind of irrational and, you know, mimetic and, you know, kind of forces at play. Um, do you ever kind of reevaluate something um, and buy back perhaps at a higher price? Um, is that something that you guys constantly kind of re-underwrite your position and are willing to kind of take that loss, if you will, and 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 you know, buy back kind of a position.
1: Yeah. Um I have two different answers. Well so first of all, worst trade I've ever done, I mean probably would be <laughs> selling Natic in December of twenty twenty. Um so. you know it was one or two cents and now it's two dollars. Um that one I sold it because I mean we were we were working with them uh like the auger team was working with them and and they kind of like, you know like a lot of the team left, um, who we were working with, which I always use, you know, not a good sign. And then, um, and then like a lot of like the, a lot of the actual like kind of like security features that Matic was supposed to have, we found out actually were were, were, like years away and not actually implemented It didn't really work. And so, you know, my thesis was, well, Pantera has a very big arbitrum position already, like, you know, and and Starkware, like, you know, we we own a bunch of the leading layer twos anyways, like, Maybe I'm just wrong on Matic, and I'd held it, you know, for for a long time uh, prior to that, and, and we ended up just you know selling it, uh, and obviously terrible trade. Um, I don't think we bought that one back. I I don't think we did. Um, there are definitely other things though where we passed on it or didn't do it, and then later bought it. And Luna is an example of this. When they raised their private finance, and we thought it was expensive, but then we put on a big position in the public markets, um, you know, like summer of 2020. Because we thought it was very cheap, um, and so we're definitely willing to like you know admit we're wrong and and change our view on things. Um, sometimes you just miss the miss the boat though. like with Matic. Like you know, I think it was like two cents, and then it went up to like forty cents, and then you know maybe you wait for a pullback to like you know twenty, and it it never happens, and then you know a number of months later it's two dollars. Um, you know that's that's the way the business is. Some, sometimes you, you you don't always catch every trade, but um, that would probably be my worst
2: one and i am curious um we talk about micro we talked about you know kind of how you think about the the space uh, from the application layer investing in base protocols what is kind of like your highest conviction thesis right now uh, in terms of perhaps over the next one to two years and why
1: yeah i mean there's, there's a couple things I and mean, we one like in terms of individual positions like we, we really like luna i just think the the team doquan is is like an animal in the sense of how hard he works and how fast he ships product and and that sort of thing. And I like the ecosystem as well. Like we we backed kind of all the main projects he's he's you know built on top of it and they've all been great from like an investment standpoint and also great from attraction standpoint. I think um you know outside of that though I'd say my highest conviction thesis is is you know as a firm we're very very bullish on on DeFi. I think it's just going to be the most transformative thing that comes out of this tech. Um, and it's something that, you know, on the liquid side, like right now, it's it's actually we're pretty underweight DeFi relative to historically, but I anticipate that'll change some point this year. Uh, like I think, I think DeFi, maybe it already has bottomed. Uh, there's some certainly some technical indicator signs that it has bottomed versus ETH, um, but I, I kind of want to wait for a little bit more confirmation there. But I think um, have massive conviction in that and just owning like a diversified portfolio of that. I think right now, depending on how you, how you measure it, DeFi is maybe five percent of the space, something like that, in terms of overall market cap. And I, I honestly think, you know, next five years, it, it, there's no reason it shouldn't be 40, 50 percent of the space. Um, and so that's that's sort of it's a simple idea, but it's, it's my highest conviction one.
0: Joey, uh, there's this there's this like narrative that DeFi will replace the banks, um, and like, uh, but then you start using these DeFi platforms, and I'm staying at an Airbnb with my co-founder right now, and he was playing around with Platypus last night. And it's like an AMM for stables or something like that. And I can assure you, this thing is not a retail platform. This thing is complicated as hell to use. So when you think about like the capital that comes into DeFi and the users of DeFi, where on the spectrum do you land in terms of like, okay, this thing's replacing the banks. This is a retail platform. We're all going to use these DeFi things as like where we keep our savings and stuff like that. The other end is like, no, 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 no. Like the Jane Streets and the Susquehannas just end up moving into the space and they're just basically generating like market neutral 12% a year through DeFi platforms.
1: Well, I mean, I think, I I do think retail will eventually use it. It it may look a bit different though, in a couple of ways, you know, one, maybe you have kind of companies built on top that make it really easy to use and access. Um, Like that, that's a lot of what, um, you know, we've done with like eco.com is like making it really easy to access crypto for people who have no idea what crypto is. And so I think that's gonna be like part of it is people kind of funneling in, into apps like that. And then there will be people who, you know, use the actual underlying protocols with a UI in their, in their browser. Um, and I think it's fine to have both. Um, and in terms of like the, the kind of browser style UI, I think those get way easier to use over time. Right now there, there are things people have kind of slapped together, like the platypus thing, like, you know, I doubt they're trying to target, you know, bank customers in the US, they're, they're probably just trying to target random people in crypto. But I think that'll, that'll change over time. As far as banks, I think they still will exist. And they'll probably be the ones that, that survive will probably just be, you know, user interfaces that allow you to access this crypto stuff, um, you know, in the very long run.
2: It's been interesting. Um, Look full disclosure. I I have a position in Risk Harbor. I I think they're doing some interesting stuff. Insurance to me has felt like one of those categories that is not very kind of sexy but if you look over over time even going back to like wait you know colonial times or you know whaling industry you need insurance in the absence of, just trade just generally in the absence of having insurance a lot of these industries kind of didn't really take off until you saw robust insurance solutions and and I think defi is sort of in that state where you know look there's a reason why you have a high APY there's there's a lot of risk in the space there hasn't been enough lindy um, you have this chaotic innovation, which is great, but time and time again, we see hacks, right? And so when I, when you talk to a bank, when you talk to a large financial institution, they're like, this is too, too much of a wild west for me. I'll come back when there's this much more robust solutions out there. I'm curious from your perspective, Joey, like how do, how would you characterize, like how far are we from a state of the world where a user doesn't even think about DeFi, doesn't even think that he's using crypto. It's just crypto on the back end, You're using the rails. You have automatically you have insurance kind of f mimic like FDIC insurance contract, you don't lose your funds. What what do APY like yields look like at that point? And and you know, do you think th- there's kind of this common criticism of default is look, it's interesting because yields are high and then there's a, a subset of like degenerate investors that are okay taking this risk because the the yield is quite high. But once you have real banks come into the space, the yield gets crushed, everything's very reflexive, everyone walks away and you're just going back to like traditional finance. Um, I think that's a pretty harsh criticism. There's a lot of innovation in DeFi. There's a lot of friction that gets removed, but I'm curious to get your perspective uh, because I've seen you kind of tweet a lot about like, you know, Risk Harbor and, and Terra. And so I'm curious kind of how you think about just more generally the space and insurance and that kind of equation.
1: Yeah i mean I, th- I i agree insurance is really important and yeah we i love risk harbor uh, we're an investor in them as well and i think the way like i think in terms of rates right so like they'll come down but like if you look at rates for like renting, renting securities you know they're like through your broker for instance they're like four to five percent annualized obviously if you're you know a, a 10 billion dollar hedge fund and have a prime broker relationship with goldman the rate's probably much lower but um if you're running through a site like interactive brokers or or you know, E-Trade or whatever, you know, it's in the neighborhood of four to 5%, which is higher than, you know, a lot of sources, but it's lower than, you know, what you have in crypto today. And I think they will kind of trend towards that direction over time, but I don't think it's a problem, right? Like I don't think the main selling point of DeFi is that you have, you know, higher rates. I know some people say that cause it's, it's a great selling point, uh, but it's not like the main benefit, you know, it's, it's this global financial system that's inherently, you know, trustless and, and has lower fees and all these other benefits. So, um. And I think in terms of insurance, way more capital will come into the space once insurance is is more widespread because, I mean, even Pantera, there's a lot of stuff we don't do in DeFi if we can't get insurance on it because, like, if the upside's 2x and the downside is, you know, you lose $20 million, like, you you don't want to take that trade. If you lose $20 million because you put on a $100 million position and it went south, that's something you can explain. But if you lose twenty million dollars because you put it in a liquidity pool and it literally got hacked and disappeared, that's something that's much harder to explain, um, and and you know sounds really bad. And so, like, there's a lot of opportunities and things that people would do in DeFi and capital that would be deployed if there was more widespread insurance. So I think it's, I do agree that it's really key.
0: And you think that this insurance is very like it's DeFi native insurance, things like Risk Harbor or I don't know what's going on with Nexus Mutual in the last like couple of months. I haven't looked into them recently, but it, but that's kind of what it looks like.
1: I think it's DeFi native, and then you will have people in the traditional, you know, traditional finance world who repackage it and and sell it, you know, as a, as the, their own product. And you'll probably have people who offer it, you know, who are completely centralized too. But I think um, the most successful ones will, will probably be other decentralized protocols, in my opinion.
0: Joey, I've uh, I've one last question for you. Then, if you could shadow any investor or any builder for thirty days. Who would it be and why?
1: Investor wise, I, I investor wise, I'd probably say um, Peter Thiel because I think I think he understands, you know, especially this current cycle, he understands macro really, really well, um, and that's something I want to understand more. I think he's he's been very smart on that that side of things. Um, outside of him, I think like you also have like Benchmark, like Peter Fenton, and and you know, you know, those people at, at the Benchmark are are just really great and early stage investors. And I think, you know, learning from them would be cool as well. Um, probably, I think it'd be interesting to just shout out Elon Musk, you know, he's just super interesting and, and has his hands in a million things. So I think that would be fascinating.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Well, Joey, thanks again for sharing your thoughts. Uh, thanks for sharing insights into how Pantera operates and what you find exciting. And I'm sure we'll do this again soon, hopefully.
1: Awesome.
2: Thanks, guys.
0: Joey, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Joey.